Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, the uh, the big story, breaking news from just a few minutes ago, that uh, the courts have ruled that uh, Doug Ford's plan to cut the size of Toronto City Council has been tossed out. It's uh, Bill 5 uh, would have cut their council seats from 47 to 25. Uh, but there are implications uh, to this judge's decision, obviously. We're in the middle of a municipal election campaign. Joining us to talk about this, Alan Carter, uh, the anchor of uh, Global News at 5.30 and 6, and, of course, Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Uh, thanks, Alan, first of all, well, happy Monday. Thanks for joining us on the program today. Oh, well, thanks very much, Bill. I appreciate that. I don't know what it's like where you are, but it's end of days here in Toronto. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, the, the guy that's collecting two of each kind of animal in the back parking lot here is a, a dead <laughs> giveaway that there's something going on here. We we surprised by the judge's ruling. Um, I, I think it was difficult to know precisely where the judge was going to go. But obviously, I mean, everybody we talked to that was a legal expert said that you know that it, w- it was pretty clear that the province actually has the power to do this. The question is, had they violated rights by doing so uh, with zero consultation and having done so so close to the actual voting day? And it's obviously clear that um, the the judge decided that, yeah, that was a violation of freedom of speech and expression uh, and therefore has ordered the province to go back on itself and and ordered the clerk, the city clerk, to go ahead with the full slate of municipal elections as previously planned. Well, you and I were talking about this on Friday. Obviously, we're at that point of speculation at that stage and wondering just where they were in this process. I mean, if, if you were a registered candidate for ward whatever, uh, and all of a sudden you, you're not going to run there? Are there going to be 18 people on the ballot? Now, that's clarified. Now, I, I'm anticipating, here we're into the speculation, and I guess, uh, Alan, uh, Doug Ford says he's going to have more to say about this around noon today. You've got to assume that they're going to try to appeal this. Yeah, so what they would have to do is they would have to initially get a stay. If they, if, to appeal it because of, the, because of the, the lateness of the hour, they would have to get a stay of the current decision while they underwent an appeal. And obviously time is ticking away. We are very close to election day. And, you know, just think about it. If if you're thinking about mounting a campaign, it makes a pretty big difference whether or not there are 20-plus seats or 40-plus seats. Well, we're, what, about five weeks away from voting day? It's, it's October 22nd when everybody's going to go to the polls. And you got to wonder about the implications of this. As you say, how, how do you campaign? Where do you campaign? Whose door do you knock on? And, and what seat are you running for? I mean, we, as, as of now, 10 minutes after 9 o'clock, I think they have a clear idea. But you're right. If they get a stay on this, does that mean we revert back to Bill 5 again? Well, it, it, it's difficult to know because can they get the stay? And what will the uh, higher level of, of court do about the time constraints? And, and will a, a higher court grant them the stay and say, okay, well, I'll look at this? Or is it a possibility that the, the judge will say, yes, I will look at it, but um, the 2018 municipal election must go as status quo, as its previous incarnation? You know, I, I know some people are going to think that we're splitting hairs here, but when when Doug Ford decided he was going to do this, and they, they introduced and, and eventually passed Bill 5, I, I don't know that there was much of an argument ever that, hey, the provincial government doesn't have the power to do this, because they've done it. There's a track record there. Uh, you know, back in the 70s, they forced regional government onto a number of jurisdictions. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, with the Harris government, of course, there was the forced amalgamation. You went through it in Toronto. We went through it here in Hamilton. So we know they can do that. I think it's a matter of timing more than anything else, isn't it? 
I think that's the issue, is it's timing. Um, it's also a lack of consultation. Um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I certainly didn't hear the Ford uh, government, or rather the, the Ford campaign, talk about this at all in the election campaign. I didn't hear a thing about it until they're in power. And then, I mean, I, you know, it, it's like we talked about last year or last week, though, is that the Ford government is discovering the hard way that just having the most seats in the legislature does not mean that you can just do whatever you like. <laughs> there are there are courts, there are other uh, checks and balances, and the you know as with Tesla and possibly yet still to come with you know um, basic income and a bunch of other things, sex education. The government's going to discover that enacting its agenda is a little bit more difficult than perhaps it thought. But doesn't that speak to the governments and, and their attitude? Because uh, we've heard this before when governments have tried to force this in, and you know, and then they chastise the the courts for having the audacity to enforce the rules of the land, or or to, to actually recognize the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, which is a document I think we're all proud of, unless it's uh, it, you know it's, it seems contrary to something that we want to do right now. You know, there's got to be some discussion about exactly what kind of rules and parameters any government has at this stage. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, and, and you come back to this, like, who is the arbiter? Who is, I mean, it's a central question that we, I think we have in our society, which is, at the end of the day, who makes policy? And, you know, we know that politicians make policy, but it's judges that rule as to whether or not it's constitutional and whether or not it withstands, you know, the, the legal test. And, you know, if, if you have a government that isn't going through and dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, then it finds itself in these legal troubles. And I think what's happened with this new government is that, you know, they are eager to get things done, but not so eager to see all of the pitfalls that come along with moving quickly. Well, for those scoring at home, uh, as, as one person put on Twitter just a little while ago, uh, the score here is, uh, uh, the way things are looking right now, is uh, Justice 2 for the Ford government, zero. Uh, and now, that's obviously somebody's slanted opinion on this, but it does go to your point, Alan, about the fact that governments, and they, they hire lawyers, too. I mean, this is not just Doug Ford talking. I'm, I'm certain, at least I hope, that he sought legal advice on this before he tried to do this, uh, as to whether or not it works within the confines or the parameters of, of the laws of the province. And, and clearly what this justice is saying now is, no, it doesn't. Well, I mean, there are some serious questions as to whether or not, Mr. F- you know, the, the premier got any legal advice on any of this stuff. I mean, that was the question from the judge in the Tesla cases. Like, did anybody ask? Did, it, did anybody pick up a phone and, and say, hey, can we do this? You know, um, and I, I really think that this has the potential to really unseat Ford's um, you know, honeymoon. I mean, I think he's he's done well to communicate to his base that, yes, we're moving on these things. We're moving on all of these, you know, cap and trade, all of these things we said we were going to do. Forget about all the conversations and all the talk and blah, blah, blah of the former liberal government because people are sick and tired of that. Let's just get some stuff done. Well, we have discovered now that just getting stuff done is not the way the system works, unfortunately. What are the implications on this uh, with other uh, jurisdictions? Uh, because when, at the same time uh, that, that he tried to reduce the Toronto City Council size, he also basically eliminated uh, the two positions of regional chair in a couple of regions around the GTA. 
Now, I don't think there was a court challenge about that, but does this throw everything into into uh, disarray right now? We don't know what's going on. I, 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 you just have to wonder what, what's going to happen with these other areas. My understanding is that there's no change in the cancellation of those regional chairs. That's my understanding from the... the okay. And so, you know, Patrick Brown can't suddenly decide now that, well, now he's not going to run for Brampton mayor. Now he's going to go back to be regional chair again. Which, is there anything that that guy isn't trying to run for? Is there anything... <laughs> I mean, I mean, if he doesn't win the Brampton mayoralty, he'll be running for school trustee in your ward, or he'll be he'll be running to to be your garbage pickup guy. Uh, but there's no real change in, in that. But again, it throws this sense of confusion into the entire Ford agenda. And as you mentioned, noon today, uh, Doug Ford will address the media and answer a bunch of these questions about what is his government going to do now in the face of this legal ruling. Uh, one of the areas of speculation, I'm sure you've seen this on Twitter over the last little while, is uh, uh, I know it's not from Ford, but it's from obviously a number of his advocates uh, suggesting that the judge actually should have recused himself from this because apparently, I guess, he was uh, one of John Tory's uh, uh, instructors uh, at, at law school uh, way back when. And as a result, I guess, you know, there's some idea there that there's a conflict of interest. Now, I don't know if there's any legitimacy to that. I don't know how many instructors and, and professors uh, people have in law school. I would assume it's more than a handful. Uh, so I'm not even sure if that's relevant. But did you hear anything at all, Alan, from the time that they decided, the Toronto City Council decided to appeal this, anything at all, uh, anybody complaining about who was actually selected to hear this case? Because I'm hearing a lot about it now that the decision's been rendered. That's funny. That, I had not, that you're, that's news to me. I had not heard any of that. Yeah, a couple of things that, well, the liberal judges, which we tend to hear a lot of, all of a sudden they're liberal judges if they rule against uh, somebody who's a conservative. Uh, you know, that's, again, it, it doesn't ring, you know, very true. But the other element to this idea is, is they're going to try to prove conflict of interest. Now, I don't know if that's what's happening. It's just that uh, some folks uh, in some media circles, uh, hashtag Toronto Sun, uh, seem to be moving in that direction right now. And I'm just wondering if they're actually uh, echoing what uh, the Ford folks may be thinking of doing right now. Because uh, to, to, to get a stay, you, you can't just say, I don't like the decision. There has to be some legal ground, I would think. Yeah, you would have to say, well, I have a, we have a legal ground to, to be able to, you know, to appeal this. And remember that the grounds, it, it gets weird with the courts. It's not, you don't, you don't appeal the ruling. Uh, because you can't do that. What, what you, you, basically, you're not saying, well, I, I disagree with the ruling. What you say is, I disagree with the way that the ruling was achieved, and therefore we have to have it looked at again. And so that's what the, what the government lawyers are looking at right now. Uh, and, and again, we get into this whole idea. As, as we're, we're trying to obviously connect the dots here. Uh, the Tesla ruling from a few days ago, very, very similar uh, the tone uh, from from the judges in both cases that guys, you didn't ask anybody, you didn't talk to anybody, you haven't proven that this is actually a legitimate way to go. I mean, I know that uh, Ford suggested that they're going to save, I think it was something like fifty million dollars or something if they reduce this. Uh, but as as my old math teacher in grade twelve used to say, Alan, show me your work. Don't just give me the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it appears that there has been very little work done by the Ford government on this, and certainly, in, like you say, in both those cases, both Tesla and this one. And what will be interesting is, is if it continues to be a common theme in these legal challenges. I mean, you know, if we get to the <laughs> human rights uh, challenge uh, on on sex ed, I mean, are we going to get a judge that says well, the government didn't do all the things that they were supposed to do? And again, I think that that really will have a drag on the perception of this government. 
And, you know, people might think, well, this government's got, you know, my best interest at heart. They might believe in, well, they're trying to make it cheaper for everybody. But at the end of the day, if the government can't get the job done, if everything they try to do is get blocked by the courts, people are going to get tired of that. And I don't think they're going to blame the courts for it. They're going to blame the government for not knowing how to get things done. But there's a common theme here that we talked about during the campaign, and, and obviously they've carried this through now that they're in government. Uh, it's it's populist politicians, and it's easy to say stuff that you think people are going to get into. You know, it, It's always a winner if you say, hey, we need less politicians, because nobody likes politicians. Uh, it's easy to say, you know, it should be buck of beer because, the, but in both cases, easier said than done. You know, the buck of beer thing fell flat than than a beer that's been sitting out for five weeks, and now this political reorganization has been struck down by the courts. Uh, clearly, what, I guess what the the courts are saying here is, guys, you got to do your homework on this before you move ahead. Well, and I and I think that it's going to be, it'll be interesting to see what the premier says this afternoon. Has he and his government? learn that okay pretty clearly we got to go back to the books on this stuff and we're gonna we're gonna get it done i mean that's one message track that he could have today look be you know be a little humbled by it somehow i don't think that that's the play he's gonna make uh but he could come out and say look we're gonna we're gonna go back we're gonna fix this stuff we're still gonna get it done or he can come out and complain about the courts and say why are the courts meddling in what is clearly a electoral mandate that i have It'll be interesting to see how the government responds to it today. Does this embolden some of the other folks that are on the sidelines watching this? You talked about the human rights uh, and tribunal and, and what may be happening with the sex ed curriculum. Uh, there's also, of course, the cancellation of the, the Green Energy Act and uh, uh, the wind turbine contracts, etc. Uh, those folks haven't publicly said that they're going to go after the government, but you got to think they're, 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 they're thinking about it at this stage. And with two decisions already against this government, that may put a little wind beneath their wings. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we've talked about the various different kinds of lawsuits that uh, the government is facing. It's facing some from business like Tesla or in terms of the White Pines Wind Farm, the one in Prince Edward County that the government has canceled. And the owner of that contract, that company says it's going to cost uh, taxpayers $100 bucks just to cancel it. And, and for that, we get a couple of half-built turbines. Um, I don't know what you can do with those. Um, I don't know, maybe you can put a slide in them or something, maybe maybe a <laughs> playground. Um, but you're but you're right. If if it continues to look like, you know, that anybody that sues the government is getting places, there's gonna be a lineup of lawyers waiting to sue every time the government does anything. Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, noon today, uh, Premier Ford says he's going to have something to say about this, and I would imagine that'll be unveiling some kind of a strategy on this. Uh, it's a must-watch Global News at 5.30 and 6 tonight as the drama continues uh, at Queen's Park and in Toronto City Hall. We'll be watching, Alan. Thanks so much for the time today. Bill, always great to be with you. Thank you so Take much. Take care. Alan Carter, of course, and uh, he and uh, Farah will be uh, giving you the latest on that at Global News 5.30 tonight. <laughs> You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Christy Freeland uh, was uh, doing the talk show circuit over the weekend. Uh, she spoke with uh, Global TV's Mercedes Stevenson uh, about uh, her optimism uh, to still reach an NAFTA deal that's going to be favorable to all three parties. 
I'm not so sure that everyone shares that sort of optimism these days. Let's get Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor at, of course, the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Thanks for coming in. Good to have you Glad here to today. be here, Bill. Uh, let's, t- let's talk about optimism at this stage. Uh, you know, if you can cut through the bombast and the rhetoric uh, if, that you're hearing, not just from Donald Trump, but from Larry Kudlow and a bunch of other folks right now mm-hmm. uh, who seem to be pushing against Canada, uh, I'm not getting that vibe from Lighthizer uh, with some of the comments he's made. What are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Well, Bill, we should stay, say at the beginning here that there's an old song that says, Rainy Days and Mondays Get Me Down. This is a combination, Rainy Monday, <laughs> so I should be down. But I am still uh, cautiously optimistic. Now, another week has gone by with no NAFTA deal. We're now into double digits in September. Remember that October 1st deadline looms. This is when Donald Trump wants to be able to take to Congress some final text that he certainly has with Mexico, but he would like to add Canada to it one way or another. Uh, If I just focus on the negotiations themselves, I think it was a productive week last week, and it seems that we're down again to the final three. Uh, The first one, and we've talked about this several times, is around supply management and milk. Larry Kudlow says that's the whole sticking point, M-I-L-K, milk. I'm not sure it really is. I think we have a route that we've demonstrated with both the European Free Trade Agreement and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is to allow more American milk in. And I think all we're doing is arguing how much. I think the Americans want us to take all limits off and just let the milk flow in whatever way they want. And I think we're saying no. Right now, we let in roughly 3% of what we consume. Maybe we're talking about making it 6 And so there's some horse trading going on there. But that, that strikes me as something we can solve relatively quickly. Uh, The cultural industry one, that's sort of a new one we hadn't talked about before, and I'm not quite sure that's code for something. It's either code for our uh, broadcasting industry and and, uh, telecommunications industry. In other words, uh, the Americans want free, unfettered access into the Canadian world of telecommunications, internet, etc., and we're probably pushing back. Or it has something to do with other broadcast rights Apparently, we, Canada, angered the United States when we allowed American Super Bowl uh, ads to be shown in Canada rather than the other way around. So I don't know. But I think that's relatively easy to solve. The big sticking point, and it was the sticking point 25 years ago, is dispute resolution. And I'll even say this to you, Bill. I, I am a little surprised that Mexico seems to have agreed to a deal with the United States without having this resolved because it affects them just as much as it affects us. Basically, a dispute resolution. Some company says, I'm being unfairly tra- uh, uh, treated under NAFTA. I'd like to appeal whatever's going on somewhere. The current rule, the current rule, this is why we want to f- defend what's called Clause 19, is that a three-person tribunal is appointed, one person from each of Canada, Mexico, and the United States. They hear this, they rule, etc. What the United States wants is that if there's any dispute involving an American company, it's only solved by an American judge. And that's it, full stop. Oh, oh, if it's about you and Mexico, fine. We can have three-person three person tribunals, but with us, it's the other way. We say, no, we can't have one rule for you and one rule for the rest of us. And, and uh, somebody said, is this a hill to die on? I, I don't think it's a hill to die on for either side. I don't think it's something that the United States should give up on or Canada should give up on. We, we just need to negotiate, and I'm sure they're working through the fine points question, though, is we've been at this for 13 months. Can we get a deal in the next week or so so the text can be ready for October 1st? And I will say time is beginning to run out. And let's get into the the dispute resolution thing, and because yep. and, and, I think it's very important, and I think it's a, one of the reasons why it seems to be a sticking point, obviously, is because in past uh, years there have been a number of uh, disagreements, shall we say, yes. 
uh, and an awful lot of the time it involves the United States. And an awful lot of the times the United States lost. Yeah. So uh, they took an action. We would appeal it under NAFTA. We would win. And, and I think what Trump looks at is that's not right. My actions are always right. You're, you're wrong. And, and so he wants a mechanism that he can better control. Um, now, I, if you just look in the last year, you can think of two things that happened. One was there were softwood lumber tariffs, and we've promised to appeal that to both the World Trade Organization and under NAFTA. Three previous times we appealed, three previous times Canada was found to be the guilt or to be the, the infringed upon party here that the United States did something wrong. But having said that to you, I was shocked as anything last year when Boeing made allegations against Bombardier and when it all the dust all settled, the internal American people said, yeah, no, there's no damage here, a case dismissed. And you think, well, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that if American judge hears things that it wouldn't go our way. It's just that there's a bit more impartiality in the judges, and I think that's what we want to hold out for. Well, uh, especially when you have elected judges and uh, this is an election year, you don't know what's going on. And that's right. not to create that perception because I, I, I get a little skittish every time I hear people saying, well, uh, judges always make decisions based on politics. That's not true. No. Uh, you know, that they're, 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 they're lawyers. They adhere to the law. Uh, and we like to think that's going to happen. But you want to make sure, first of all, uh, that's why, for instance, the Supreme Court is not one person. Uh, there's a series of judges there because you want to have that discussion and that debate on key issues. That's why I think the, the tripartite uh, uh, panel that they've set up currently right now seems to work. But is that a hill that the United States wants to die on? Yeah, see, this, and this becomes very interesting. So if, I was talking about the negotiations. Now, if we just pull back from the negotiations, you mentioned Christia Freeland was on the talk show circuit. Well, Donald Trump was on the circuit as well. That's not like him. And that's not, you know, it's so unusual for him to speak out. And... Um, just amazing rhetoric from an American president. And, and as soon as I think I've been amazed, I need a word ultra amazed, I think, now, because he just keeps going farther. At one point on the weekend, he said something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting exactly here, you know, I love Canada, but I can ruin you in a heartbeat. Who says that? This sounds like a supervillain out of some, this some is, Marvel you know what, movie. You know what this is akin? This is Khrushchev's We Will Bury You. Yeah, well, I guess so. It's just I've never heard language like this. How can you love us and at the same time threaten the ruination of our economy? I can ruin you. I can ruin you. Who says those things? Now, I will tell you this, Bill. He, he has threatened that if we don't come in, we don't join, well, you know, I'm going to have to put tariffs on that auto sector, whatever that means. We don't know if it means finished goods or parts or what it's going to mean. And he says that like it's going to hurt us. It is going to hurt us. It would cause a recession in Canada, no doubt about it. And with it, the political damage to Justin Trudeau, you know, many people would not forgive him if, if Trump did this and caused us to go into recession. But at the same time, it's like an exploding bomb. The United States would go back into a recession, too. His own automobile companies say, please don't do this. Every economist says you'd plunge us back into a recession, especially as he heads into an election not that far down the road excuse me, himself, how many times do pundits say, it's the economy, stupid? If he was to put the country back into a recession, it doesn't bode well for him. I feel like these are hollow threats, that this is just bluff and bluster that should be ignored. And I would have ignored if it was anybody else but Trump, but he just is unpredictable well, enough that he can pull the Well, the steel and aluminum tariffs were supposedly an idle threat, too, and, and here we are dealing yeah. with them. Uh, it's interesting, though, how the the auto manufacturers are starting to maybe try to stick-handle around this, because he he has talked about foreign ownership and and uh, and, forward, and more U.S. components, etc. Uh, and what was the example we heard of over the weekend? It's the Ford Focus hatchback, I guess. 
that it's actually made offshore. I think it's made uh, someplace in the Orient. Uh, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And so Trump has proposed a tariff right now that says I think it's a 25% tariff on everyone that gets imported back to the States. And uh, Ford announced on Sunday, he said, you know what? We're not going to import them. We're not going to sell those in the States anymore. So you're not going to get any money from us at all. So there. So you got to think that, they, you know, in the head offices, in all the three major automakers, they're trying to find a way to get around this, too. They're not simply going to acquiesce. And they've already lobbied Washington to say, don't do this. Well, and you're, and you're right. They're thinking about it. But the question is, do I need a short-term solution or do I need a long-term solution? If you take steel as an example, and we had the steel summit here Friday in Hamilton, um, and again, I'm probably being Mr. Chipper here, maybe a little too glass half full, but I'm not sure there's been a huge amount of impact on our steel and aluminum industries in 2018. Contracts were signed, products being delivered, and temporarily, or on a short-term basis, companies are spending the money on the tariffs. They don't like it. They've applied to Washington for exemptions, but they're doing it. However, as you look to 2019 and 2020, they aren't placing orders for that steel because they don't know what the long-term implication is. A great example here in NAFTA, so another prize, if I can call it that, not only could we get an agreement, but presumably if we ink an agreement with the United States, then say goodbye to those steel and aluminum tariffs. That seems to me to be the quid pro quo. Once I have NAFTA, I don't need these tariffs. That would be great news for us. So the sooner it happens, the better it would look for 2019 and 2020. That's another prize Christy Freeland has to work on. So you know, what do what are we prepared to concede on? I think we're prepared to allow more American uh, dairy and chicken and egg products into Canada. And now I think we're just talking about how much. I think culturally, I think we're prepared to allow some American companies into our internet and telecommunications world, uh, probably not unfettered access, but we'd open up a certain amount of it. Uh, but I think dispute resolution is really the clause. And that was the same thing 25 years ago when the first NAFTA was signed. It was still being discussed and the ink was still drying three hours before they had the official signing ceremony. It's just that difficult. But how how much of an impact is, is the, the Trump bombast in situations like this? The, the I'll ruin the Canadian economy. Uh, those sorts of things. Uh, you know, I'm going to impose even more tariffs. Uh, you know, I mean, even going back, I mean, if, you know, people like to look back to that G7 meeting in Quebec back <laughs> yes. in the summertime and yeah. say, well, that's that's uh, that's when things fell apart between Trump and Trudeau. I'm not so sure that they were very strong to begin with ever. But, uh, but essentially, because Trump's comments before he got on the plane and took off, was that, yeah, we, you know what, we pretty much have an, uh, an after deal right now. Canada's decided, you know, they've agreed to give in on uh, supply. Men. Well, and, and Trudeau got up there and said, that's not true. Uh, and it, you know, he, he didn't stab him in the back, as, as Trump characterized it. He just said, we did not do that. I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah, and clearly, he's right, because that's still on the table. <laughs> still on the table, right. Well, I think, I think, again, that's quite true. Trump blew into that meeting, that G7 meeting. Uh, there was a, apparently a very productive meeting between Justin and, and uh, uh, Donald and, and all their other colleagues around there, and they seem to have made some progress. Uh, however, when a piece of paper got circulated a couple hours later that said, now we've talked about this and we sort of agreed to this, it was actually the Americans who said, whoa, 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 no, no, we didn't, we didn't actually say that, we didn't actually say that. So then as Trump does his goodbye press conference, remember he left early because yep. he had to get to Russia, I think it was, um, uh, he then said, well, you know, we have all these things. Well, no, we didn't have these things. And then when Justin corrected the record as the host, because that's his job as the host of the G7, uh, Trump came back and said, oh, you don't think I have TVs on Air Force One? I saw what you said there. Well, you're going to have to pay. I, I, again, I think, fortunately, Christia Freeland, uh, Robert Lighthizer, their Mexican counterpart, are, are negotiating in good faith, not in the media, and they're really trying to ignore what their bosses say. 
I don't think Christian Freeland should react to Donald Trump's claim of bombast. He wants to, I guess, soften the field by threatening big guns, threatening big bombs into the Canadian economy. What he's actually doing is stealing our resolve. I think most Canadians, like Justin Trudeau said, would prefer no deal to a bad deal. So get us the best deal you can, but if it's not going to work, don't sign a deal. We're not going to let that Trump win. What about these deadlines that seem to come and go? (laughs) You mentioned time is running out. Uh, That's uh, according to whose timetable? Yeah, fair enough. So uh, uh, they had a deal inked with Mexico by September 1. Uh, then they have 30 days to actually produce the written version of the deal. Then, in theory, uh, uh, the Mexican government and the American Congress would review it. The American Congress will not approve it by December 1 because, of course, there's the midterm elections. But in theory, the Mexican president, the current Mexican president, Peña Nieto, he could sign this deal before he leaves office on December 1. So I think they're still trying to move down that track. Having said that to you, Bill, and and there's always this tug of war in Washington between Donald Trump and these other branches, the Senate and the House, it seems very clear that the Senate and the House don't want to deal with NAFTA if Canada is not part of it. They don't really want to look at a U.S.-Mexican deal, and especially they think Canada should be there. So I don't think whether we have the deal by October 1 is really a a deal breaker for us. Now, what would Mexico do? The the incoming president, uh, Lopez Obrador, has said he would have signed the deal. Uh, that he still wants Canada there and he still respects us. So I'm not hearing anything that would give me pause. But obviously, the sooner we can get this resolved, the sooner we can get those tariffs off steel and aluminum, the better it's going to be for everybody. Yeah, but the Republicans in Congress are, are saying one thing and doing another. They're, yes. they're, they're saying we want Canada in this. You know, that that's, this is what this whole thing is about, is about trade between all three countries. But on the other hand, they turn around and pretty much give Trump whatever he wants. They have been doing that, and, and I think some of that you can attribute to the American political system. They have this marvelous thing called primaries. So even if I am the incumbent, I have to win a primary to name me as the Republican candidate. And I think some of the Republicans were afraid to take on Donald because Donald might have backed their opponent, and then they couldn't get reelected. Those races are almost pretty much done now as we head towards the midterms. And now that I'm the affirmed Republican candidate in a riding or a war, an area that is pretty Republican, uh, maybe I won't fear Trump as much. And I, I have to still hope hope that's the case, that there will be uh, good Republicans who will step forward and say, this, this is it's time to rein him in. The other, re- the other rationale for that, Bill, is if they don't calm him down in some way, they could be headed to a flipping power. In other words, there may be enough Democrats elected this fall to swing the power in the House. There may be enough Democrats elected this fall to swing the power in the Senate. And for sure, if the Democrats control the Senate and the House, they would go after much of this as well. So the Republicans may have to be doing something to rein Trump in. I still think there's drama coming later this fall. But for the moment, again, it's still just us at the table hoping for the best. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always a pleasure. Thanks for being here today. Glad to be here, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're a sports fan, uh, and a tennis fan in particular, uh, you paid close attention to what was going on, of course, over the past weekend. Even if you're a a passive tennis fan, you know, don't watch it all the time, uh, there are certain events that you do pay attention to. Wimbledon, of course, is one, and the U.S. Open, Uh, and uh, because the stars are all there. I I mean, I know they have the Rogers Cup and everything that's going on here in Toronto, and the Toronto area, but... But you, you this, these are the granddaddies, right? The ones, the big ones. Uh, and uh, obviously the competition is intense, as it is every year. 
and there's always a concern about who's going to win this thing. And, well, when it comes to the women's side, of course, more often than not, the conversations uh, tends to circle around Serena Williams, uh, one of the greatest athletes in the world, obviously, who dominates uh, women's tennis time and time again. Well, she made it to the final, of course, which was held on Saturday at Flushing Meadows. Uh, but it did not go well. Uh, a series of uh, calls against Serena Williams on Saturday during the women's final of the U.S. Open. Uh, she was playing uh, Naomi Osaka from uh, Japan, uh, provoking a heating debate among athletes, fans, commentators, and celebrities about gender equality, chauvinism, and fair treatments. Uh, it's, it's very difficult unless you've seen the clip, and I know a lot of you have because it's gone crazy on social media uh, over the last 48 hours or so. But uh, it involved... What she thought was, uh, in her characterization, uh, sexism and uh, misogynist activity uh, and even racism uh, by the umpire who was making calls, the line calls at the time. Uh, It's not unusual to see this in tennis. We know this if you followed tennis over the years. As a matter of fact, there are some people, some of the greats in in tennis, in in professional tennis, uh, are known just as much for their tamper tantrums and their rants as they are for their ability on the tennis court. Uh, John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, I mean, there's a whole long list of the Amelia Nastasia. You can write down the list. Uh, but uh, and, and it's unusual to, to see the, the, the referees, the judges, the officials uh, react in an adverse way. Of course, like as in every sport, there are rules that need to be followed, and there are penalties for those that don't follow those rules. And that was the case in this particular situation. And uh, it got to a, a point of frustration, I guess severe frustration, uh, with Serena Williams, and uh, she had this confrontation finally with uh, the umpire on the line. You need to, you need to, you owe me an apology. You owe me an apology. I have never cheated in my life. I have a daughter, and I stand with right for her. And I've never cheated, and you owe me an apology. Uh, that was just a brief part of the uh, the exchange that occurred. Uh, she was fined seventeen thousand dollars U.S for three code violations by uh, the official, who was Carlos Ramos, uh, during her 6-2-6-4 loss to Naomi Osaki. Uh, she was accused of getting coaching signals. Uh, in anger, she broke her racket, which cost her another point, and finally her reference to the umpire as a thief cost her one of the games. Uh, now, here's where it gets a little complicated, I guess, in some people's minds anyway. Uh, the assertion here is not that she did something, uh, she never did anything wrong. The, the, the violations are pretty obvious. We know that. But it's the idea of a double standard, the concern about double standard that uh, really seemed to take people aback. That uh, the assertion by a number of people uh, suggesting that, uh, look, it, if that were our man that was doing that, there probably would have been warnings. Yeah, there might have been fines, but you don't award a game to the opponent in situations like that. Uh, that's their assertion, and that's where the uh, the accusations about sexism, racism come into play. Joining us to talk about this is George Belshaw, who is a sports journalist with Metro UK, uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. George, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks a lot for having me. What time is it over there? It uh, is about 10.40 in the morning here now in, in our time. I appreciate you joining okay. us from the UK today. Give me, give me your perspective on what you watched on Saturday, George, with uh, mm-hmm. with Serena Williams. Yeah, so, I mean, it's obviously a pretty uh, unusual scene for a Grand Slam final. It's uh, not one we'll forget quickly. Um, so, basically, uh, from my perspective, you know, Carlos Ramos has given her a code violation for coaching uh, and a fair kind of code violation. Uh, her coach has kind of admitted 
uh, to coaching after the match, and you can clearly see him kind of making the symbol. Um, Serena's taken that kind of coaching violation quite personally. Um, she's kind of said, you know, I would rather uh, lose than cheat to win. Um, but to be honest, you know, a coaching violation, in my opinion, doesn't necessarily mean you are cheating. You know, it, it, he's calling the coach, if anything, rather than Serena. Well, it doesn't really matter if she saw the uh, attempt to coach or not. But yeah, from there, um, it all kind of got a bit out of hand when she got a second code violation for racket smashing. Um, and, you know, there's no disputing that code violation. And once you've had two code violations, that's a point penalty. And then once she's had that point penalty, she's seen the redness really descend. Uh, and then she's accused the umpire of being a, a liar and a thief, um, which, you know, is clearly verbal abuse under the laws written in tennis, which are, you know, you can't question the umpire's kind of integrity to the game. So I, I think all three code violations were right from the umpire. I think he was within his rights to give them out. Um, I think Serena's overreacted to the situation. Um the reasons for that overreaction could be many. Um, I'm not here to kind of slam her character or whatever, but I do think she was wrong in this situation or took it the wrong way. Um, and I, I do feel very sorry for Carlos Ramos, who's getting his name dragged through the dirt bit on all of this. Well, what about the accusations, though? I, I don't know that a whole lot of people, if I'm just watching what was going on on social media after the the, the incident on Saturday, George, and uh, I, I didn't see too many people defending Serena's actions. Uh, you know, even as a matter of fact, as you mentioned, the coach even admitted, yes, I was trying to coach, and Serena's assertion is that she didn't see that. Well, that doesn't mean that it still didn't happen. Uh, and those are all violations. But her, her argument, where I guess she lost it, uh, wasn't so much about the, what she did; it was the way that the the official responded to this. And and her assertion, of course, is: look at if if this was men's tennis instead of women's tennis, uh, it would have been a totally different scenario. All the years you've been watching and covering it, right? That is 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 that a fair assessment? I, I honestly don't think so. In this particular scenario, um, you know, she probably could make that accusation that a lot of other umpires out there. Um, but Carlos Ramos, to me, is probably the most consistent disciplinarian umpire out there. He kind of follows the uh, rules to the letter of the law. He, um, you know, he's called out guys like Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, uh, all on the same kind of offences that Serena faced in that match. I think you know Serena has to look pretty hard at herself, um, and I, I hope she watches this all back and does eventually apologise and issue a public apology to Ramos over this, um, because. Uh, I don't see how she can genuinely argue that she wasn't out of line on three kind of separate occasions or, you know, she was right to be faulted on three separate occasions. She's taken it the wrong way, taken it very personally, escalated the situation. Um, and I genuinely think Ramos would have done the same for any male player or female. I'm wondering, and this is hindsight now when I'm looking at some of the reaction, uh, if this was a tipping point for something that had been brewing under, not just with Serena, but for others. And I'll reference one of the tweets from Billie Jean King, of course, the brilliant tennis player uh, and Hall of Famer, who says, when a woman is emotional, she is, quote-unquote, hysterical, and she's penalized for it. Uh, and then she says, when a man does the same, he is, quote-unquote, outspoken, and then no repercussions. Uh, that's her assertion. And, and I'm wondering if this is if this is just a, an explosion of, of uh, an undercurrent of, of uh, the double standard that maybe women have been feeling about tennis and, and umpiring for quite some time now. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very possible. And I, I would say the one good thing from this kind of whole debate is that people are re-examining umpire standards. They are kind of 
looking at how um, these violations are uh, given out from umpire to umpire, and it's clear there's a lack of consistency, particularly in the coaching rule. You know, there's so much coaching going on on the tour constantly. It is quite hard to catch. It is kind of randomly applied in a lot of cases. Um, but I, I do think Serena and, and Billie Jean King, to be honest, uh, might be kind of blinded by this agenda of equality and uh, kind of pushing women's rights on this sort of issue within tennis because to me, Carlos Ramos, I've seen every single incident he's been involved in of this kind of nature before and he reacted in the same sort of way, man or female. He is, as I've said before, you know, he is black and white kind of umpire. He literally sees the rules, applies them. There's no kind of leeway. He's not so fond of the kind of soft warnings and stuff like that. And, and Serena's known Carlos Ramos for many, many years. You know, his, his kind of umpiring style shouldn't have come as a surprise to her. Um, and, I, and that's why I think it's kind of very surprising in all of this, um, is that she wouldn't have expected Ramos to kind of call these code violations out because that she's been umpired by him before. All the top guys on the tour have. He's been there a long time. He's an experienced umpire. He's been at every single Grand Slam final. Um, so I, I think regardless of whether you know, there's a, there is an underlying issue in tennis, and there certainly is in general with sexism, um, it, it didn't apply here. And whether that tainted her reaction or whatever in the wrong way, I think it's actually damaging her cause now because it's so blatantly clear to those who know the game well who you know, watch the same umpire a lot of the time that this incident in isolation was not sexist. And, and again, to your point, I mean, this is not the first time that, that uh, accusations of sexism in tennis have have surfaced. I mean, it's it's been something that's been there, and uh, some of the comments from some of the the, the men's side over the last couple of years uh, seem to have inflamed that once again. And I'm, obviously, this seemed to be a tipping point in this situation. But even some of the men who have responded, and and I'm interested, by the way, that uh, I'm, I'm I was just as struck by the number of people that didn't bother to, or who I thought may have commented on this. Uh, but they suggested that what started this whole thing, of course, was the uh, the accusation about coaching, uh, which turns out to be true. Uh, but many of the people I saw on social media, former players and current players, said, you know what, uh, a soft warning would have been more appropriate than simply to, to penalize at that stage. And, uh, and many of them said when we were accused of the same thing, that's what we got. And they were surprised, notwithstanding how, how black and white you mentioned that, uh, that Ramos is in this situation, that he went to the extreme part of that penalty instead of the warning at first. Yeah, and this is this is what I mean about the kind of application of the coaching rule. Um, I think Ramos's problem is not every other umpire applies his standards, his kind of fundamentalist view of tennis laws um, to the game and applying it. So, you know, to players like Serena and all these kind of ex-players who are coming out like this, um, and a lot of these guys have had bust-ups with Ramos in the past. I mean, you, you don't have to search too hard to see kind of Djokovic having a go at him or Nadal or Murray calling him a stupid umpire at one point in his career. Um, you know, this sort of clash isn't that common. But in Ramos's defense, I would say to him, I would say, you know, he's probably applying the rules more honestly than a lot of other umpires are. And the discrepancies between the two are the big kind of problem. You know, they've created a kind of softer atmosphere that, you know, when this sort of call does happen, Serena, she took it so personally, you know, a lot of umpires are very, very reticent to call out the very big players, the very big names, uh, call them out when they are doing something wrong or their team's doing something wrong on court. 
that I don't think we should be blaming Ramos for actually doing the right thing. Do you know what I mean? I think it's more the other guys who've kind of created a softer atmosphere outside and then they've left the one guy who's maybe applying it fairly. So we need consistency across the board. I think that's what should come from this. Um, and that's clearer rulings. And maybe some people are kind of saying coaching should be scrapped completely. I'm not sure I agree with that um, because, you know, a lot of guys on the tour can't afford to have a full-time coach, for example. So it seems a big advantage to me to give, say, the world top 100 coaches, but not the guys beyond that. You know, that's kind of an extra advantage they can get. Um, so I, I think... Or maybe a kind of video referee could work where you have a, a an umpire off the court who's watching a video of the coaching boxes who can say to Ramos or any other umpire, okay, coaching is going on right now. We can see it on our video screen. That might be a fairer way to kind of screen it. Um, but it's pretty clear that that rule needs a lot of clarifying and the umpires need to start applying it in the same way. Uh, so the players just get used to it because it's, it's clear she just reacted to a situation she's not used to. But but you mentioned, and you talked about some of the men who have been uh, known for their tempers, uh, Jokovic and, and even Andy Murray. Uh, were any of them penalized a game uh, because of that? Because that seems to be the uh, the foundation for the discrepancy here, saying, look, I, we don't remember any of the big main male stars ever getting penalized to this extent, yet Serena seemed to be the focus of a yes or a Saturday. Okay, so, I mean... The men, uh, to my knowledge, I don't remember Murray or Djokovic ever being given a game penalty or whatever um, from Ramos. But what I would say in their defense is normally when this sort of thing escalates, it stops straight after. You know, there's a, there's a good video that's going around of Djokovic being uh, handed a verbal abuse violation for swearing in Serbian. Uh, Djokovic goes up to the chair and kind of questions this, and he does kind of rant at Carlos Ramos like Serena Williams does. But he, he doesn't go as far as to say, you're a thief, you're a liar. You know, he questions the call, but he doesn't make it a personal attack on Carlos Ramos. And that's why this situation is very, very different. You know, Serena's behavior is kind of indefensible in a lot of ways. Any other sport, if you're going up to an umpire, or certainly any other sport in the UK here, we, if you go up to a, an umpire or an official or a referee and attack their character, call them a liar, call them a cheat, essentially, call them a thief, then you're going to be in a, a hotbed of water and no one would say two things about it. I, I, I just don't really see... I've never seen anyone on a tennis court call an umpire a thief like that. I don't think there's a record of anyone calling them that. So that's why this situation is so different. Um, and just in general, you know, the guys haven't picked up three code violations. They might get one violation for verbal abuse, but they generally then switch back onto the match, don't let it affect them and get on with it. And Serena didn't let it go. She kept pushing and pushing. I just think Ramos was absolutely right in this situation. Well, the uh, court of public opinion seems to be pretty much split about uh, whether or not Serena was a victim in this situation. But i got to tell you, uh, the, the way I look at this, George, I think the one person I really do feel sorry for here is Naomi Osaki, uh, who is a, a woman's champion and, and probably had a great tournament. And uh, uh, that was totally overshadowed, obviously, by the incident that occurred. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And I think everyone who's kind of watching on from this scenario agrees too you know we should be celebrating this historic moment the first player from japan man or woman to win a grand slam you know she's a 20 year old girl she's gone out beaten the world's greatest uh, tennis player in many many people's minds ever to have played um so 
you know, it, it, we should be looking at this as a brilliant, brilliant achievement because she played a brilliant match. She took Serena apart in many ways, um, which may have been an extra kind of contributing factor to Williams getting so riled up. You know, there's a lot of pressure on her shoulders, chasing Margaret Court's records and, you know, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. We should be trying to shift the focus back on Osaka, um, but I do also think we need some form of apology from Serena Williams and better responses from the tennis authorities who have been pretty weak on the situation so far. Absolutely. George, a pleasure having you on the program today. Thank you so much for the time. No problem, anytime. Take care. George Belshaw, sports journalist with Metro K over in the UK. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.